In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the 1970s, a man named Hal Lindsey wrote several books proclaiming that an event called the Rapture was going to occur in the 1980s. The Rapture is a misunderstanding of our Lord's second coming. In more recent years, this Rapture was depicted in the books and movies of the Left Behind series. I read one of Lindsay's books called The Late Great Planet Earth when I was in college and a very new Christian. I didn't understand any of it. In the mid-1980s, a man named Edgar Wisnott published a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988. Aside from having a last name that undoubtedly led to great humiliation in junior high school, Mr. Wisnott was talked about among all the Christians that I knew in Toledo, Ohio, where I lived. Wisnot maintained that even though the Bible says we cannot know the day or the hour of the Lord's second coming, it doesn't say we cannot know the week or the month. Thus, he predicted the week of the Jewish festival of Rosh Hashanah in September of 1988 to be the time. One local Bible church pastor took Wisnot at his word and was seen on the local news almost every night leading up to the predicted week. He and his congregation were bidding, busy getting all things ready for the Lord's return. Oddly, when the week was over, the pastor was nowhere to be found, although a few of his congregation's congregants were willing to be found by the news. In the 1990s, a man named Harold Camping, founder of the Christian radio network Family Radio, predicted not this mysterious event called the rapture, but the real second coming of Christ, that is, the end of the world. Like Wisnot in 1988, Camping predicted the event around September 6th, which he revised on September 7th to September 29th, and then on September 30th to October the 2nd. In 2005, he recalculated and published his prediction to 2011. Camping died in 2013, having publicly repented of predicting the date, which he believed, probably rightly, was a sin based on a passage in Matthew 24, which we'll read in a few weeks. Three men over the last 50 years, and many more before that, and probably many others not as well known. But these three men were serious theologians. Camping, especially, who was called a wonderful nut by a pastor that I knew who also knew him, Camping was a serious Bible scholar. His radio network undoubtedly helped many people understand the Christian faith in new and deeper ways. But as soon as he predicts a date for the second coming, that is, the end of the world, he's more nut than wonderful. And why would these sincere Christian men do this? Why write books and do radio shows? Why not keep this to yourself and not be looked at as crazy? Now, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that they believe this to be good news. After all, Christians do believe in the second coming. We say it in the creed every time. If someone could actually decode the hints in Holy Scripture about the when, shouldn't we want to know this? Well, I don't know. The church calendar and the lectionary work together to get us through the major events of our Lord's life every year and through the major events in Scripture every three years. Take 20 or 30 minutes a day to do the daily office, and you'll get to read even the minor events in Scripture. Seriously, 
Get yourself in the daily office habit. It'll do a world of good. Only two more Sundays and we're at the end of the lectionary. On December 1st, we'll begin a new year, Advent 1 of the three-year cycle in year A. The first Sunday of Advent every year ties the end, the second Advent of Christ, with the beginning, the nativity, the incarnation. And year C, the year that we're in right now, is giving us something of a ramp up to that end and beginning. That is, all of today's readings have to do with the end of time, the second advent of our Lord. Even our psalm today mentions when the Lord comes to judge the earth. Creation itself, the sea, the lands, the rivers and the hills, will all joyfully proclaim the coming of the Lord in judgment, a judgment in righteousness and with equity. In other words, not as the world judges. We can dread judgment in the world, but God's judgment is something to look forward to. That seems a little strange, doesn't it? Turning to our Old Testament reading from Haggai. Like Mr. Wisnot of the 88 Reasons, Haggai has a somewhat unfortunate name for kids in junior high. I recall as a youth myself making fun of such names. Malachi became Malak Nose and Malak Ear. But as we listen to the reading from Haggai, we see that although his name may sound funny, his prophecy is not. He speaks of a time, vaguely referred to as in a little while, where the Lord will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Indeed, the Lord will shake all nations, with the result that the splendor of the Lord's house, the temple which was to be reconstructed, the Lord's house would have greater splendor than ever before. Like today's psalm, this future coming of the Lord is a good thing for God's people. The Lord's shaking shakes out the bad and makes the good look even better. Today's New Testament reading also speaks of shaking. Did you hear that? St. Paul urges the Thessalonian church not to be shaken, thinking that the Lord had come and they'd missed it. That would be pretty disconcerting, wouldn't it? The priest at the first Episcopal church I attended, Father Joe Keblish, had such an incident early in his priesthood one Sunday in the springtime. He showed up to celebrate Mass and found it was already underway. That's right, daylight savings time had started that Sunday and he'd forgotten to move his clock forward. Each year he would implore the congregation that not too many of us could, could remind him of the change. St. Paul's words of comfort to the Thessalonians include these words from verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the tradition which you were taught by us, either by the word of mouth or by letter. That is, Christians will not miss out on the second coming of our Lord, and neither will anyone else, by the way. And although our Lord's first advent was on a silent night in the little town of Bethlehem while shepherds watched their flocks, his second coming will not be so subtle. Handel's Messiah puts it this way, the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised. That will be hard to miss. And that is the hope that we are to stand firm in. We have been taught this both in word, the Holy Scripture, and by mouth, holy tradition. And speaking of hope, that brings us to our gospel for today. For it is hope that the Sadducees do not have. The Sadducees were a group of religious officials who, like Mr. Wisnot of the 88 Reasons, took the Bible very literally. 
since there was no mention of resurrection in Genesis through Deuteronomy, the books of Moses, there was no resurrection, period. Seems to me a hopeless existence, but they were trying to make something of it. And so they approached Jesus with an absurd question showing both their ignorance of the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew God. A hopeless existence often leads to absurd questions. They ask about marriage in the resurrection, pointing out one of Moses' laws about brothers marrying their dead brother's widow. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection, they ask. Well, they're playing stump the savior and they think they've found the right question. And as I said, a hopeless existence often leads to absurd questions. Our Lord points out their ignorance and in doing so gives us some teaching about marriage. Marriage is something for this age and in the age to come there is no marriage because our Lord says they cannot die anymore. No marriage because they can't die anymore. Now there's a joke in there but you can make that up your own jokes there. Further, our Lord points out that Moses, too, must have believed in resurrection. At the burning bush, Moses calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were, of course, buried with their ancestors, or so thought the Pharisees, I'm sorry, the Sadducees. But no, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, and our Lord's resurrection proves that beyond any shadow of doubt. Those today who say there is no resurrection and there are many of these modern-day Sadducees, certainly in our secular world, but also in the church, they are just as hopeless as were the Sadducees asking Jesus absurd questions. It seems absurd that someone would call themselves a Christian and deny that Jesus was raised from the dead, because what on earth do they have to believe in? Only the here and now, and how depressing is that? Philip Yancey, this seems to be the sermon for funny names, Philip Yancey was a columnist in Christianity Today for several years. His column was entitled, I Was Just Wondering, and always appeared just inside the back cover. And here's a fun fact for you. Most people read magazines by flipping from back to front. So the article that's just inside the back cover was often the first one that people would read. One of Yancey's columns was entitled, Imagine There's No Heaven, and asks this question. What would a society look like if it did not believe in, the, in an afterlife. Writing in the late 80s or early 90s, Yancey listed the following conclusions, and there's eight of them, so stick with me. Number one, youth is valued above all else. Since nothing exists beyond life, beyond life on earth, youth represents hope. Number two, old age is not valued. Elderly people offer a distasteful reminder of the end of life. Number three, image, is of emphasized over substance. Number four, religion focuses only on how one fares in the here and now, for there is no reward system after death. These are Yancey's uh, conclusions as what a society would look like if they didn't believe in an afterlife. Number five, crime turns, takes a turn toward the violent and bizarre because there are no deterrents to deviant behavior. Number six, billions of dollars are spent to maintain elderly bodies on life support systems, while at the same time, doctors are permitted to assist in suicides. Number seven, the ideal death is a peaceful departure during sleep. And number eight, scientists are working to eliminate the problem of death, 
Most deaths take place in the presence of trained professionals. Corpses are preserved chemically and stored in airtight leak-proof containers. Yancey concludes his article this way, and now I'm quoting, just thinking about such a society gives me the creeps. I sure am glad I live in the good old USA, whereas George Gollop assures us the vast majority of the population believes in an afterlife. In the early fifth century, St. John Chrysostom was removed from his position as Archbishop of Constantinople by the Empress Eudoxia. She threatened to banish him if he continued as a Christian preacher. History records the following conversation. You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house, said John. But I will kill you, the empress said. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures, said the empress. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in he heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left, the empress responded. No, you cannot, said John, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you for there is nothing you can do to harm me. The empress found herself with no real power over St. John Chrysostom. His hope was not anchored in this world, but in our risen Lord. Writing in the 20th century, not so long ago, Eugene Peterson writes, hope affects the Christian life by making us expectant and alive. People who hope never know what's coming next. They expect it is good because God is good. Even when disaster occurs, people of hope look for how God will use evil for good. A person with hope is alive to God. Hope is powerful. It is stimulating. It keeps us on tiptoe looking for the unexpected. I began today by mentioning three men who predicted dates for our Lord's second coming, Hal Lindsey, Edgar Wisnott, and Harold Camping. As wrong as it may be to make these predictions, as nutty as it seems to predict the end of the world, these men have something that's missing in many people. Lindsay, Wisnot, and Camping have hope. They look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Our hope is a sure and living hope, a hope that holds the future in the present because it is anchored in the past. Our hope is in this. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.